It'll take a minute. I can see it. There we go. Now it's going. I've got some friends in the Dhamma, and that uh, one of the conversations that I've had with Dhamma Vitu, who is a, a monk oh, close by, in fact, at Wat Suan Mok. I don't know when you did your retreat at Wat Suan Mok, but uh, he hasn't done the retreats over there since 2013 or so. Normally he's doing the retreats over here at Deepa Bhavan. But in the last conversation that he and Robert and I had when I was when we were together over there, we were talking about that the Dhamma is so small, that it's not big or vast or anything, that when we get into the Dhamma, every new student who gets into the Dhamma, they think that, wow, it's just so much to it. I mean, we got two of these and three of those and four of this and five of that and four more of these things and eight of those and and nine of them things and 16 of them and 12. These steps of dependent originate, I mean, it just goes on and on and on, right? And what that means is, is that, um, think of it as kind of a Chinese puzzle, a uh, uh, box puzzle, wood bo- box puzzle, or maybe even a, um, like a, a jigsaw puzzle. And we get all of these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, but when we put it together, it's just one nice little image. There's just, that's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha actually presents it that way. In the sense that in one of the suttas, he says that both formally and now, I teach only one thing. Only one thing is all the Buddha teaches, only one thing. And what is that? Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. Mm-hmm. Okay, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda is all he teaches. And yet most of Buddhist meditation, especially Western Buddhism, is Dukkha, Dukkha, I look at Dukkha, I see some Dukkha, I, I do Vipassana on Dukkha, I've got Dukkha right down, and now I've got some more Dukkha to deal with. <laughs> and where is my Dukkha Naroda? <laughs> So that's the way that most people practice it, because they they talk about insight. Basically, we only need a little bit of insight. And what is that? That's the insight to see, is this dukkha? That's all we need to do. If this is dukkha, out. <laughs> <laughs> And yet a lot of people don't get that idea. They understand that, oh, I've got to do a deep dive. I've got to dig deep into it. I've got to get down to the bottom of it. But a much more interesting and useful way of looking at it is is that how fast am I to catch that stuff? Because it's actually in a sequence of events. And it goes like that. So which part of this cycle am I able to catch on to? And how fast I am? Because I can begin to see what got it all started or kicked off. And in fact, understanding that process is the understanding of Petita Samuppada. But Petita Samuppada is nothing but uh, the expansion of the second noble truth. And that you can see that the four noble truths in fact pack back into this package called Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. That's the whole thing. 
And so when the first thing, to, the first way that we unfold this package of Duca, Duca, Naroda, we come up with the Four Noble Truths, which this is Duca. This is the cause of it. This is where it all gets going. Then the third noble truth is the one that few people spend much time with. When in fact, this is the whole point is to get yourself into a state of satisfaction to where you don't have any dukkha. And this is not a promise that's way off into the future that someday I'll have some dukkha in the road. Or right now, I got to dig through all of this dukkha. <laughs> it's not the right way to practice. No, what we need to do is get ourselves into a state of Duke Naroda, and there is a method to do that, haha. <laughs> <laughs> the fourth uh, noble truth is that there is a method. And yet we're immediately confused in English because of the word path. That this is not a path. Why? What's the quality of a path? Like a footpath or a pathway. That means... Over time, an organized way, you get a milestone one after another. No, this is much more like a method in the sense of the method of doing things, the way to do things. Okay, so this is how we look at the Eightfold Noble Method rather than an Eightfold Noble Path. And that the, the Eightfold Noble Method actually uh, has traditionally been divided into three parts. And that the three parts are, uh, depending upon one's level, is normally as presented as sila, samati, panya. You probably heard that sequence. That's the sequence for the beginner. Why? Because you don't have any panha, panya, which is wisdom. Mm-hmm. Once he gets wisdom, the path changes completely. The question is, how long is it going to take him to get any wisdom? <laughs> and when we look at Sila correctly, you see many people look at Sila, like, for instance, the monks uh, in some traditions. Oh, his behavior has to be exemplary and perfect for five years before we'll give him anything next. Never mind about uh, purification of mind if he can't get his behavior purified. Okay, that's in fact the organized method. There's a natural method. You want to be completely pure in your sila? Fine, sit down on the floor, shut your eyes, keep your body still, and don't think about nothing. And your sila is perfect right now. Next step, please. All right, so we begin to say there's a different, we have to change it from a long progression of time into what do we do sequencing in to get it done right now. So with that sila, now becomes the uh, purity of mind, and in this regard, the purity of mind is nothing but to get the, uh, the mind free from the hindrances. And yet so many, many different meditation techniques will actually say, oh, don't get rid of the hindrances, inspect them well. Note them. Note them some more. But that's not the path of the Buddha. The path of the Buddha is no purify the mind in the sense of let's not talk about unwholesome things. Let's talk about wholesome things. So I present you with a question. Is the Dhamma, the Buddha Dhamma, is that wholesome or unwholesome? 
Probably wholesome. I would think so. Yes. Yes. So so if we're actually talking about Dharma, we're actually talking about wholesome and we are not hindered. Mm. We're in wholesome. And the Buddha is very big on that. In fact, there's a whole sutta called Two Kinds of Thoughts. It's sutta number 19 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Two kinds of thoughts. What are they? Kusala, Ekusala. Those kinds of thoughts that are wholesome and those which are not. The hindrances are the kinds of thoughts that are unwholesome. So if the meditator walks into the hall under ordinary conditions because the ordinary training that he's had in his ordinary life, he sits down on the floor, instead of thinking about Dhamma, he thought about how he got there, he thinks about how this course is going to be, he's thinking about what is going to happen after I get out of this course, and and all the transportation and everything like that, and so the, the student is thinking about anything but the Dhamma. In fact, he's being hindered to think about the Dhamma. But when he's thinking about the Dhamma, he's actually generally practicing the Dhamma right then and there when he's thinking about the Dhamma. So this is a way of looking at it. What does purification of the mind mean? Does it mean going all the way into no thought? I hope you don't spend a whole lot of time. I hope, in fact, that the, the uh, people don't call EMT while you're in a state of no thought. <laughs> When you come out of no thought and you wake up, you might, in fact, be in the morgue (laughs) or in the ICU or something. So we don't mean purification of the mind or avoid mind by meaning that it's completely empty and non-functioning. No, what we mean is is that it's free from the hindrances and that we're thinking of uh, wholesome and appropriate thought. With this... When the mind is free and clear, that's when we can develop right view, purification of view, which then is what we're talking about is wisdom. When the mind is free and steady, you can see things clearly now. And so that's what we're talking about here is sila, samati, panya. And in that regard, we're talking about an, an eightfold path that the beginner is on is not noble but once uh, some nobility sets in and we begin to have noble right view then it changes around from sila samadhi panya and now the eightfold noble method when it's a noble method starts with wisdom winds up with samadhi and because of that the sila is naturally pure. Panya sila samati is the um, noble way, rather than sila samati panya is the beginner's way. Mm. So there's also this process. So now let's look at these actual steps of the eightfold noble path and look at it from the noble perspective, mm. right? That in fact, um, I'll, I'll mention this, that in several conversations that I've had with Achan Po, do you know who Achan Po is? Mm-hmm. You probably heard, he is the icon. He is the, uh, the top brass left of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. In fact, he was uh, um, the abbot of Watsuan Mok mm-hmm. from 1966. 
69, I believe. And now he's 88. He lives close by here. Uh, and that um, uh, he's highly respected as uh, um, the heir to Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. Uh, and so uh, he and I have had the conversation that we should be teaching the Dhamma on the uh, uh, internet like this in this noble way that there are all so many teachers that will teach it as a gradual method or as an organized way and that the real deep noble stuff is way later in one's practice to where no let's start with the noble let's mm -hmm. do that from the very beginning let's go in that direction uh, because that was the way that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa wanted to let the cat out of the bag. Let's let's let it go. Surprisingly enough, I thought that he was unique. But basically, what I found out that no, the the nobles in Thailand had been kind of a clique or um, a secret society, and that they were actually quite happy that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa tore the the scab off. Mm. <laughs> And he had great deal of support. That in, in fact, um, his teacher uh, was um, his name is uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Gosajarn, and he was the Sumdet Sangaraj of Thailand. And what I'm talking about is, is that uh, like the prime minister or the king of monks, you can hear the word Sangaraj. The king of the Sangha, the, the highest, most important monk at Wat Bhawan was actually Bhikkhu, no, sorry, not Bhawan, Wat uh, Tip in Bangkok, um, which is part of, within, if you've been to Bangkok, you probably have, there is a royal area around the palace, and all of these very famous temples are all within one or two kilometers of the royal palace. Including the Wat Mahatat, Wat Po, Wat Wat Prakyao, the Green Buddha, Emerald uh, Buddha, um, as well as Wat Tip and Wat Bawan. Uh, so, uh, and Wat, um, oh, what is it? Uh, the Swing. Uh, I forgot. <laughs> I know it in English, but I forgot the Thai word for it. Um, anyway, Saket. Uh, that's the Thai word. All right, so all of these temples are there, and this is what formed uh, the high the hierarchy. And what I've come to understand is this hierarchy was generally noble. This was not a bunch of old monks who really didn't understand the Dhamma and believed everything that the common people believed. That these were the nobles, and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was welcomed within that group. And so that's why he became so highly respected. And also, um, he's involved with, let us call it, the intelligence of Thailand. Not the common farmer who still believes in uh, the magical Buddhism that they grew up with. But the noble Dhamma is now at the top echelons of the universities and all of the students of, of Thailand. Uh, have a very high quality noble view, e even though there there is is politics in Thailand. Um, 
there is still a noble quality. You could go so far as to call it a um, a benign dictatorship, where the people are comfortable and happy at a general level. You don't see everyone up in arms. It's only a, a few that can get roused up. But generally, the Thai people are pretty comfortable because their government does a pretty good job. Mm. An example of that is we don't have any coronavirus here. 3,000 cases total for the whole time and only 56 deaths. Wow. Wow. <laughs> for a nation of 70 million, that's not a bad... No. Not bad at all. So... Um, Anyway, back to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, opening the world to the Noble Dhamma. And so now that's what we're doing with these talks is, is we're letting, letting the cat out of the bag. Let's do the truth now. Let's get the real stuff that is actually useful, valuable, and wholesome for the students. Rather than leaving Buddhism as some sort of magical mystery tour that uh, can look more like a religion than it can be uh i'm not quite sure what to call it it's certainly not <laughs> a philosophy i know philosophers and i do not want anything to do with philosophers much. <laughs> i would say my favorite philosopher is descartes he's the one who says i think therefore i am boy did he get that messed up <laughs> he would have been more correct if he just said i think Therefore, I think I am. <laughs> or I think me into existence. <laughs> so, um, Buddha is not a philosophy, but what it is, it's a way of life. It's a method to live one's life happily on the inside so that we can greet the world happily on the outside. But there's only two kinds of people that are like that. Those that have practiced themselves into it, who practice restraint well enough so that they become internally happy and outwardly filled with joy and metta, karuna, mudita, you've heard those terms, upeka. And then there is the one who is naturally like that in the sense of someone who was raised as a child without giving them much grief. So it can be natural. We are all kind of like that. In fact, every child would grow up happy if it wasn't for one thing. Adults. <laughs> Miserable adults sell their misery to happy kids. <laughs> guess what the kids do? Being good little instinctively uh, operated things. They instinctively pick up that misery. Yeah. We, we pick it up instinctively. And we'll talk about instincts as time goes on. And then, in fact, the natural instincts that the human has, the Buddha called underlying tendencies. And he called these as the cause of the four modes of clinging. And yes, there are, in fact, four, four woeful states that our four modes of clinging will take us to, and that we do that when we're operating instinctively. 
when we live our lives instinctively, we're in woeful state because we're operating with these four modes of cleaning. So there's four of the, there's three of the fours right there. They're the same thing. That's why we begin to understand that the Dhamma is actually quite small. It goes back down to that one little statement, Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. Mm-hmm. But there's various ways of looking at it, and looking at it in the sense of the four modes of clinging are actually when we fall into operating instinctively, and by doing in, uh, living our lives instinctively, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain when we operate instinctively, but at least it keeps most of us alive. You could think of it like this, that our instincts were pretty good 500,000 years ago. Mm. But now that we have gotten a society going, our instinctual behavior uh, may still keep us in survival mode and keep us alive, but it keeps us quite unhappy Mm. because our instincts haven't caught up the natural progression of the mind or the wisdom of the, of the mind has not kept up with the society as it's growing technologically. Mm-hmm. And so this is one way of looking at it is, is that the problems that we have are twofold. One is that we have this instinctual base and instinctual way to do things. And then we have on top of that layering all of the bad feelings and all the bad behaviors of all the ways that that could have gone wrong for the past 500,000 years ago. And it was given to us in a neat little package from our parents. Everything that could have gone wrong, they remember it is built up over time, all of the bad ideas. And so this is why you can see things like domestic violence. Mm. perpetrated in one family uh, generation after generation. Mm. And then someone will come in and make a major change and break that <clears throat> cycle. And so now the children in that family don't do that. Another example would be college education. That many people will claim, I'm the first one to get a college degree in my family. But after that, I expect all of my kids to get that degree. So what we're talking about here is actually quite a natural way that we get screwed up. Mm. We get screwed up in a natural way. Why? Because we take on all the hang-ups that our parents got from their grandparents or your grandparents' own back. And that at any particular time, we can begin to wake up and make some major advantageous changes so that we do not have to live the way that we were raised. Mm. That we can make some improvements on that. Unfortunately, though, that's quite an ingrained habit. Mm. We get really, really deeply ingrained in the habit so that when, uh, let us say, X happens and we feel bad, then every time that X happens, we automatically feel bad. We remember how to feel bad when X happens. And so we need to find a way of getting ourselves to feel good and then be reintroduced to X while we continue to feel good so that now we can handle and feel good about um, X. And there's many different examples of that. One would be someone who's afraid of spiders or snakes. You know how to cure somebody of being afraid of snakes? Give them a rubber snake. Don't throw it on them. They'll freak out. 
<laughs> but um, you show them a picture of the snake, and then you give them a rubber snake, and then you get them to touch it. Now you can hold it, and over time, they'll get used to it, right? So this is a way we also introduce ourselves into the Dhamma of finding ways to come out of the suffering right here, right now. Let's come out of it at whatever level we can. And so this is the way of practicing. So let's go to the Eightfold Noble Path and talk about it from this perspective. The first item on the path, the, no, the number one item of this method is right view. And when the view becomes wise, then it's noble right view. But right view always has to do with looking. You see, most people think that their viewpoint, like a worldview, is what they've decided the world to be. But we're talking about something different. We're talking about looking, the view of looking and changing your perspective. So you move around and take a different look at it and you can see things from a variety of ways. What then would be ordinary right view or wrong view would be to look at something and make a conclusion, and now you know. But noble right view is look and keep looking and keep looking and keep investigating and make that the new habit. Normally the habit is, is that, oh, I look and I figure it out and now I know what it is and I've come to a conclusion. And look how dangerous that is to come to a conclusion. Uh, for instance, coming to a conclusion about a political party. Well, political parties change. So it's not a good idea to have a po position about a political party when, in fact, um, you, you probably made your decisions without taking a good look anyway. That it was, in fact, many people are in a particular religion because their parents were in that religion. Mm. And that particular religion then is going to determine the politics, and therefore the politics are determined before you're born, basically. So I am a Republican. No, you're not a Republican. You're deluded into calling yourself a Republican. The more you mm. know about political parties, the less you want to have to do with any of them. <laughs> <laughs> So, this is what we mean by right view, is continuing to look, to continue to investigate. And so, when we have this right view, then the next item on the list is called sati. Now, sati is almost always translated into English as mindfulness. But, that's not what we're doing here. Let's look at, at sati from a different perspective altogether. And, that's, and that perspective is what you would call to wake up, to look, to, to note. Uh, going back to Gawenka, he had a, a statement that you probably heard, never mind, start again. <laughs> yeah. Play plays in my head start again now what the, the the statement right before that is is that when you catch the mind wandering away yeah. never mind start again come back to the breath okay 
catching the mind wandering away. We gave the mind the anchor of the breath. And as long as we were watching the breath, the sati was there. But when the mind wandered away, the sati is gone. Because your intention, your idea was, I'm going to watch the breath, and you can't do it. The mind has wandered away. So the wandering mind, the restless mind, is a hindrance now. And what we do is we wake up the sati. When you note that the mind has wandered away, that's coming into sati. But how did you know that your mind had wandered away is because you took a look. That's the investigation. Mm. So sati and this investigation run and circle around one another. Mm. They're very closely tightly linked, right view and right sati. And you can, in fact, call the combination of that then mindfulness. Except that then the word mindfulness doesn't have much power. But when we understand that there's this twin aspect that we've got to wake up and look at what's going on, or another way of saying it would be uh, to wake up and smell the coffee. You probably heard that, okay? That means to come into the senses. And by smelling, what do you do? Inhale. (laughs) (laughs) Ta-da! Full circle. All right, so this is what we're meaning then is to wake up. Shati is to wake up and that often the meditators, when they're sitting, they wake up only a little bit in the sense that they wake up to know that the mind has wandered away from the breath, but they don't go back to the breath. And what do they do instead? Oh, this is so hard. Oh, monkey mind. Oh, maybe this going this Goenka retreat's not the right place for me. I've got to find <laughs> Gosh, you've heard all of that before, haven't you? (laughs) All in here, yeah. That's that's because the sati is not strong. And when the sati is strong to wake up, even to wake up to those thoughts, look at what I'm doing. I can sit here joyfully and I'm making myself miserable almost intentionally. Why do I do that? Because I'm in the habit of doing it. I learned that from my daddy. My daddy was a pessimist, and so am I. (laughs) So the waking up process needs to be done. And that's when we take the right effort. So right effort, right sati, and right um, uh, looking, the right investigation, right view, run and circle around each other. And so we practice anapanasati, Actually, the breath is now the anchor to keep the mind focused. In the beginning, we mindfully watch the breath. Well, guess what? In the Anapanasati Sutta, every step of Anapanasati, and you've probably heard that there's 16 of them, every one of them, except for the first two, and I'll explain that in a moment, have the verb to train to develop the skill of, and in fact, this is why we do call it practice, Mm. is because it's skill development. This is what we have to do is to train the mind, and so we give it the anchor of the breath. But in all of the others, not only do they have the train uh, as a verb, but also to train the breath while mindfully or with sati, breathing in the long breath, and while mindfully or with sati, breathing out a long, deep breath. This is an important point, and it takes effort to do this. 
for the beginner. Later, it becomes really easy, but in the beginning, to, to get yourself into, um, let us say, not yet a habit, but in the rhythm of taking long, deep breathing. To breathe in long and to breathe out long. Every in-breath that you breathe in long takes a point of sati that it's a long, deep breath. If you let the breathing go back to natural breathing, in the sense of that it's completely controlled by the reptilian brain, as opposed to being controlled by the frontal cortex, which is what we're doing when we're consciously deep breathing, we're taking sati, or that we're actually working at making sure that the breathing is deep. There's two points of sati with each breath. The point to make sure that it's an in-breath that's long, and to make sure that it's an out-breath that's long. Like a sigh. <sighs> That's a good out breath. So, now that we're getting the right a- a- effort involved, there's another point that is often missed with Gawanka. The, he doesn't even talk about it at all, and yet it's an aspect of Anapanasati. Now, remember, we're practicing it in the natural way, we're not doing it according to the order. In fact, it's not possible for you to go to a Gawanka retreat and the first day only the body goes in there and the mind and the feelings and all stay in the rack. And then the second day, the feelings come in and do the meditation. Oh, no, you got to bring the whole show in there with you. That's why it's natural. So we can't practice one little thing intentionally. No, we got to take care of the whole show. But we do that by opening up. And the first item that we're working on is the breathing. But we never, in Anapanasati, forget about the breathing. It's always the breathing. To be mindful of that long in-breath and mindful of the long out-breath. While we, and that's one's right effort. But the other side of the effort is step 10 of Anapanasati and to gladden the mind. What do we mean by gladdening the mind? Well, the gladdening the mind is precisely the throwing out of the hindrances. Mm-hmm. To wake up and smell, and when we smell it, we say, yuck, that's garbage, that's not coffee, and out it goes. We throw it out. All right? So that throwing it out, in fact, this is an important part about when the Buddha was sitting under the bow tree, when he was figuring all of this stuff out, there are sutras that talk about the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths and Paticca Samuppada, but there's always this one point when the Buddha comes to, and this is actually the key, is the phrase, aha, I see you, Mara. Perhaps you've heard that term before. Aha, I see you, Mara, is exactly step 10 of Anapanasati is to wake up and see what's going on and to recognize dukkha for what dukkha is. Aha, I see you. But I see you is different from I am. Think about it. Normally when we're angry, we say I am angry. When frustrated, I am frustration. Or I am frustrated. In this talk, The Buddha is saying we separate ourselves from that. I am not that thought. Aha, I see you thought. Aha, I see you feeling. But I am not that feeling. 
This is actually now part of the real purification of the view is that separation from these hindrances, these feelings, these thoughts that are unwholesome. And aha, I see you is actually wholesome now. So we have made a major change, a shift of our effort from going out of unwholesome into the wholesome. Continuing on with that, gladdening the mind is like, whoa, wow, I'm so glad to be free from all of that stuff. I don't have to think about Aunt Susie and the fight that we had. I don't have to think about that email that I've got to write. I don't have to think about it right now. I'm sitting in <laughs> meditation. I don't have to think about those things because those things, when I'm thinking about them, I don't feel good. I'm only going to think about things that allow me to feel good. Basically, the practice of Anapanasati is the process of waking up to the fact that you can feel the way you want to feel instead of feeling the way that you're in the habit of feeling. But you can only do that when you remember. If you forget, then you'll go ahead and feel the way you've always been feeling. But if you remember, if you wake up, then you can change with right effort the way you feel by having good thoughts, gladdening thoughts. A way of saying it is, hey, man, you have spent all of these years talking yourself into feeling bad. Your dad talked you into feeling bad. Your mom talked to you into feeling bad. Your teachers talked you into feeling bad. You've been teaching yourself to feel bad and talking yourself into feeling bad all of these years. Isn't it about time now to talk yourself into feeling good? Mm -hmm. and, but this is one of the steps that, I, that uh, Goenka neglects. He leaves this out. Doesn't talk about it, and yet it's right there in the sutta. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, by the way, is really big on gladdening the mind. Mm. That this is nice, this is good. This, this gladdening the mind is a skill to be developed. And it is, in fact, part of the path as one's right effort. This is one's right effort, is to gladden the mind. Now, in the, uh, in the suttas, it talks about... Um, I'll use the Pali word pity and sukha that is born of the seclusion. Have you heard of that phrase before? Pity and sukha born of seclusion is actually part of the definition of first jhana. And it has three of the five jhana factors right there. When we have the mind free from those hindrances, but you see, Part of the way that Bhikkhu, uh, excuse me, that um, Goenka teaches is for you to stay in hindrance. An example of that is the strong determination sitting. You're supposed to have a strong will, a determination. But basically, why? Because you don't like it. Mm -hmm. Well, don't liking it is a, um, uh, is a hindrance. Why should the students sit there and not like it? Why can't they just sit an hour with a real strong determination to sit here and feel good? <laughs> to sit here and feel happy for an hour. That may not take so much work, would it? <laughs> they just came back from the Watt. Um. So, um, the, uh, the path then of the Eightfold Noble Path is exactly 
how we're going to practice Anapanasati. And that we practice Anapanasati for the fulfillment of the Sambhojana. And the Sambhojana, this is where we're talking about now, of the Vedana. That we can, in fact, talk ourselves into feeling good. So we're going to actually now energize the body. We're going to pay attention to the body. We don't have to do formal scanning, but we're certainly going to notice the touch of the cloth as we're breathing in and all of the things that we know when we're breathing out, a long, deep out breath. And we're going to start monitoring how we feel. And we're going to talk to ourselves in very wholesome ways. By doing this, by being secluded from the hindrances, naturally, pity and sukha will arise. But if the hindrances come right back, then the pity and the sukha are not very strong. So part of the practice or the skill development is to be able to sustain it so that we can get it to grow. This is where the next aspect of the Eightfold Noble Path comes in, and that is one's right attitude. And the attitude is, I can do this. The attitude of, I can clean my mind out, make my mind happy, and settle into a pleasant state. I can do this. I'm a winner. I'm not a victim. Most students come to practice meditation because they already feel like a victim. But we don't change our attitude. We continue to be a victim. All that monkey mind, you know. That's a victim's attitude. And it it has the, the feeling of that I'm a failure, which is not very comfortable. We have to, in fact, come overcome that intentionally because that's the natural it's not necessarily the natural state but it is the way that we have trained our mind to be is to go down in the face of failure rather than coming up to meet the challenge Mm. and so this is where the eightfold noble path right attitude right noble attitude is a can-do attitude i can do this So that when the mind wanders away, I can, in fact, never mind and start again. (laughs) I can. I can do it. I never mind all of that stuff. Never mind the hindrances. I can come back and watch the breath again. I'm not Mm. going to lose track of it. Mm. I'm going to remember to do this. And so this is the way that we begin to practice. And already we've gotten how the Eightfold and Noble Path, especially these first four, bring on with gladdening the mind with the right effort of joy by talking in joyful terms like, oh, wow, this is nice. Oh, what a marvelous day that this is. Oh, wow, the Buddha was quite a dude. He knew what he was talking about. <laughs> I really like these feelings, okay? So this is the way we do it. We start having happy, joyful, wholesome thoughts. And with that, we begin to feel. We talked ourselves, like I said, into feeling bad. We're going to talk ourselves into feeling good. And one of the ways we're going to start feeling is like a winner, a champion. We can do this. 
When the mind wanders away from the breath, I can remember. I can come back. I can take a deep breath. I can put a smile on my mind's face, if not on the actual face itself. Right. Put a smile on. This is what we're looking at. I can do this. I'm successful at this. I am not a failure at meditation. I'm a winner. This is one's right attitude, and that winning attitude also has a winning feeling. This winning feeling of literally being on top of the world. And in fact, what it is, is we're on top of our own world. We're on top of it. Then, in fact, one of the students had the, the, the term that everyone is an emperor of their own pile of dirt. <laughs> The question like is, are you going to be buried under your own pile of dirt? Or are you going to be sitting on top of it? <laughs> your choice. And we often find ourselves buried in our own pile of dirt, which means now we've got to go to wake up that here I am. I don't want to be here and out I come. I'm taking the right effort, taking a deep breath and coming back out of it. And now that I'm out of it, wow, does it feel good to be out of that dirt? And I am now the emperor. I am now what in the Pali is called Lokatara. Loka, the world, Tara, the above the world. Lokatara is a Pali word. Means we translate it as transcendent or super mundane. Achan Po likes the word super mundane. <laughs> above the world, above the pile of dirt, the mundane pile of dirt. And we're above it now, which in a way of clinging, we've let go. We've let go of the whole thing. And now we're free. This is what we call the muti or moksha. And so these are the path factors that we're talking about. And the results of those things are like gathering together the, the tools that we need. There's one more, and in fact, uh, we've already talked about it, but we've got to go back and refresh and look at it. That this process of taking deep breaths actually energizes the body as well as being able to throw out some of the old poison. So taking these deep breaths actually not just energizes the body, but it energizes the mind also. That a lot of students, when they're practicing meditation, if they're not breathing well, then they'll slump down the chest will collapse, they're not getting good breathing, and then they'll go into a stupor, and they call that stupor jhana. And they think they're going deep. But no jhana here, the kind of jhana that we're talking about, the first jhana, in, in fact, is the one that we're discussing, is bright. It's noble. It's on top of the world. It's really not down in there. And so this quality then also, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has the term fit for work. When the mind is fit for work, which means sati and the deep breathing and the hindrances are gone and we feel really good that we're on top of the world and to now the mind is really fit for work. And so the first job that we're going to give this mind that's fit for work is to merely, can it maintain being in this state of being fit for work? 
which means you get on the guard and make sure that no unwholesome thoughts are going to come back, that the deep breathing is not going to be forgotten, and that we can sustain this state of bright animation that has the feeling of being a winner, the feeling of being satisfied, the feeling of being safe, the feeling of being secure, the feeling of I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, I've got this thing, this is it, I like it, okay? That's the part that we want to maintain. This is pity, sukha, it is uh, free from the hindrances, it has the mind that we've applied to the wholesome, and now we're sustaining it on the wholesome. Are these not the five jhana factors? So by gathering these things together, Anapanasati is nothing but a trisse on how to get into and maintain first jhana, mm. which are the two skills that we need. One skill is to get into first jhana, and the second skill is to maintain the first jhana, is to get into this state of rapture. This is not something that we keep in a book that you hope that you'll find someday. This is a skill to be developed right now. Mm. Get yourself joyful. Gladden <laughs> up. Gladden up, folks. Let's get a joy. Let's get some joy juice going. We have to make it. We have to manufacture it. We have to bring it on. We have to think about it and getting ourselves into that bright, joyful state. All right. So, if we now, in fact, have right view that is a right investigation, a right noble investigation with right noble sati, the intention to wake up and to wake up, that this is a skill to be developed. It's the number one skill to keep waking up, to be here now. If you can't remember to be happy, you won't be. Because the natural tendency is to be unhappy. You've been trained to do that. You're a Westerner. So, with that right effort, once we take the right effort to take those deep breaths, to gladden the mind, to throw those hindrances out, and the right attitude comes, I can do this. These four things bring together the sama area samati. The word samati does not mean concentration. It means gathering the factors together. And when the mind is unified, it's naturally going to be free from immorality. Why? If you are in a state of satisfaction, you don't want anything. If you don't want anything, you're unlikely to steal it. <laughs> so this is a completely upside-down way of looking at morality. Most people look at morality, can you follow the rules? And we say, screw the rules. I'm happy. I don't need any rules. I've already <laughs> got all the rules I need. What is the one rule I need? Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. See the Dukkha, see the hindrances, and come out of them. This is the goal that you have. That's Anapanasati. Now, there's some details in there that we need to discuss later, and, and one of them I'll go ahead and mention, and that is relaxation that uh, step four of Anapanasati is to relax the body. What does that mean? That means we're secure, we're not on guard, we're relaxed. 
Now, the word that Bhikkhu Bodhi uses in his tran translation is tranquil. I think that's a bit too much. Mm. When I hear the word tranquil, I hear the word tranquilized in the sense of a dart and uh, uh, some high-powered medicine, and then there you've got a big animal that's completely out of it, mm. unconscious. That's tranquilized. No, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for something that's vibrantly alive and ready to go but completely relaxed, free from adrenaline, free from being ready for fight or fight, because we're not, we're not afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to fight, nothing to flee from. Got no place to go and nothing to do. And we can just sit here and enjoy. This is the practice of Anapanasati. And you, as you're hearing this, you'll probably say, yeah, I think I was missing a piece here and there. I've been working with a jigsaw puzzle with a couple of pieces gone. Mm. I think that's a song about Leroy Brown. You've probably heard <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, we have been. We're been. We've been trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle with some mm. of the key pieces missing. Mm. So now we can say we can put those pieces together because we do actually understand that these are past factors and they should be incorporated right there in, if this is in fact the method of the Buddha, the Eightfold Noble Path, then that needs to be practiced with whatever we are calling it, including yoga, anapanasati, or whatever it is. We need these path factors, hmm. which is right view, ending in right attitude. I can do this. Okay, so that's about what we have to say, I, I imagine that you guys now have a new perspective on how you're going to actually practice. I do. I especially appreciate the the it's something I've been thinking about a lot is, um, you know, as you said with the the Goenka tradition, it's very much like you know, observe, 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 but then there's nowhere to go from, you know, there's, that's, that's, a, I'm like, okay, I'm observing, I'm observing, but they're just, the, you know, things aren't, things aren't really changing, it's, it stays the same, so I appreciate, I really appreciate the added piece of gladdening the mind, and really putting the hindrances out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the practice. Uh, I can give you many sutras. One of them, in fact, um, we were just covering this. It's in the Dinganakaya number two. That it has even a longer explanation than the place that I know of, and that is uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya number 39, where it gives five analogies for what it's like to be free from the hindrances. And I'll just mention them now, and later we'll talk about him in detail um being free from the hindrances is just like being in debt and paying it off being in hindrances and coming out is like being sick in the hospital and then getting well being in hindrances is like being in jail and getting out of hindrances is like being free getting out of jail being a servant or being free you can do what you want to do. Mostly what we're a servant to is our own desires. 
Yeah. <laughs> In other words, if you didn't want anything, then you'd got no service to perform. And then the last one is you're out on a journey. And then you come home. That you're out with your own caravan or your whole uh, load of luggage. You guys have known that. That you've been out traveling. And while when you're traveling, you've got to watch what's going on. You, how do you go up to the ticket counter and manage your luggage all at the same time? You know the whole nine yards of it. But you, when you're home, you just set that old suitcase down. You don't even want to unpack it. It's just like, wow, I'm so glad to be free, <laughs> free from that journey. I'm home now. Okay. So that's the way that we want to cultivate our attitude about freeing from being free from hindrances. Wow, well, I'm so glad that I don't have to think about that. To be really pleased that you're free, that you don't have to think, you've got no job to do. That in fact, throwing out the job that needs to be done is the job that needs to be done. That's one's right effort, is to recognize we don't have any work to do. Let's stop working and enjoy the moment. Stop working because the hindrances are work. The Buddha also says it like this. He says it's the karma that brings an end to karma. Now, that thing is really, really loaded down, and in fact, it's uh, end of a, an hour's talk on comma. But comma, that's it, the end of comma. An example would be if the cops want to stop traffic, they put up a roadblock. And just that little roadblock, look how much um, action it, it'll stop, okay? Um, breaking the bow. If you break a bow, then look how many arrows don't get shot with that bow anymore. Mm -hmm. And so in this regard, the comma that's bring the end of the comma is one's right effort to throw the hindrances out. Because look at all that comma when the hindrances are there, just buzzing and spinning and all. We're out in the desert. We're owing somebody money. We've got work to do. All of that stuff. And we take that one little effort and out you go. I see you, hindrance. I see you, Myra. And out. And that was all the work there was to do. The action, the right action, that brought an end to all of that other action. And now I could be here and I can, and, and uh, quote haiku. <laughs> My favorite. No place to go and nothing to do. And the uh, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Very relaxing. Relax. Got nothing to do and no place to go. That's when the job is done. So get yourself into the situation of finishing that work. Take the action that it takes to stop the action. And then you're satisfied. And you can practice that over and over and over again until you get good at it. This is why it's a skill to be developed. Sukha mm -hmm. is a skill to be developed. Sukha, by the way, is exactly the opposite of dukkha. When you are in a state of sukha, that means that you're in a state of pleasantness. Dukkha is when you're dissatisfied. Sukha is when you're satisfied. 
not only are they opposites in the Pali language, which a lot of Westerners who are learning Pali, they don't understand that these are opposites. But in the Thai language, they actually are. They have the Thai word of duke and suk. But hold on one more time. I've got a kid, or a student rather, who's um, from the Gujarat. And he knows Gujarati. And guess what? Duki and Suki are in that language too. And they're both opposites. They mean exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Dukkha and Sukha. So this is what we mean is get ourselves into a state of satisfaction means to come out of the hindrances that cause un- dissatisfaction. What this means is, is that third noble truth is readily available to you. Mm-hmm. Recognize that. When you're going over the Dhamma, we say, wow, this is third noble truth. Got it. Bang. <laughs> this is it. Satisfied. I'm liking this. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, Damaraj, I think I have a question, um, if I may. Um, I'm I'm finding a lot of times I I'm not experiencing uh, a lot of dukkha in itself. I'm not. There's there are very few moments where I'm sitting and thinking, "Wow, I'm really dissatisfied with this thing or that thing." Um, I know that's why you called me. <laughs> <laughs> if you had been thinking about that instead of. <laughs> whatever you were thinking about, you wouldn't have bothered calling. Oh, I'll call him some I, other time. I'm having too much joy right now. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> of course, um, I'm. I, of course, I, I guess. I, I guess I could have used more suka, um, anyways. Um, but I'm. I'm really. <laughs> uh, this is. This is the. This is why I guess I'm not looking to get rid of dissatisfaction. I'm just looking to get more satisfaction. Um, is the way I'm looking at things. Um, and so, I don't know, at, at the beginning, I thought it made it kind of hard to relate to um, the, the basics, which is there is Dukkha. And I'm saying, yes, there is Dukkha, but not not a whole lot. <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe maybe that I'm only not... means number one, you're actually number one and number two, you're making two mistakes. Mm-hmm. One is you're not looking closely enough. If you look closely enough to see Dukkha as Dukkha, you'll say, wow, that is Dukkha, and I want out, okay? Okay. Most people will say, oh, well, it's suffering, but it's, or, or it's Dukkha, or it's a little bit. It's worrisome, but I can put up with it, mm. right? Okay. So that's one side. The other side, when you use the word more the way that you did, indicates that you see it as continuous over a long period of time. And that we're taking our frame of reference completely different. This is a new view. The view is we're only thinking about this hindrance at this moment in time. Do you want this hindrance right now or not? Mm. And see, you're thinking about them over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. But if you can see this dukkha right now as dukkha, you'll throw it out and you'll put something uh, wholesome in right now. Okay. 
That's why the Eightfold Noble Path, this for, the, the actually the first noble truth, is the first noble truth, is because this is the job that has to be done, is to wake up and look to see what a mess this is, because only then can we deal with it. Mm. Now, at the extreme, I've actually had um, a Westerner Buddhist say this. He says, oh, well, and by the way, the background is he's a university professor of mathematics. So that gives you the station and all of that. And so when you hear him say, you'll understand this is when he says, oh, well, my life is okay now. And that uh, the Buddha's teaching makes sense only in, to me, only in the sense of the samsara of life after life after life of drudgery before eventually uh, uh, an ending to it, right? That his, his dukkha is not now. He, uh, he can just see that it eventually will build up and eventually over lifetimes he'll get to the point that now he wants to practice the Dhamma mm. because now he doesn't see the Dukkha. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why there's a lot of people who believe in rebirth. Mm-hmm. Is basically, it means that they don't see Dukkha as it really is right now. If you can see the Dukkha right now, you didn't want out of it. Mm-hmm. And if you want out of it, you can come out. This is the method we do to come out of it. But you got to see it first. And what you're telling me is, is that right now your dukkha is not strong enough, which means to me you're just not looking at it closely enough. Okay, so so there is there is a step of looking at dukkha for what it really is, or looking at things and seeing the dukkha in them. Even though it's not obvious, it doesn't okay. seem to So I'll give you a hint. Anything that does not have you howling with, cackling with laughter is dukkha. And anything that's not a dukkha, you're going to smile and joke about and have great fun with. Okay. <laughs> or another way of using the, uh, or looking at it is serious. Mm-hmm. Don't take life seriously. You're not going to get out of it alive anyway, so the story goes. (laughs) Or another way of saying it, the reason that angels can fly is because they take themselves so lightly. Mm. (laughs) Okay? So, if if lightly, if, if we're going to live our lives a delighted life, then that means anything that prevents us from being delighted is hindering us from being delighted. Anything mm. that's preventing you from having sukha is in fact dukkha. Mm. Watch closely now. Take a good look. Yeah. Just like Mahasi says, look. But as soon as you recognize it as dukkha, out it goes. And it's quite possible that you wake up and take a good hard look and you say, hey, I'm thinking about something pretty wholesome right now, and that's okay. Because sometimes, especially as you start plan- start practicing, you'll begin to have more and more wholesome thoughts and fewer and fewer unwholesome thoughts. 
because you'll get very good at recognizing unwholesome thoughts and you'll throw them out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that's that's another perspective. I'm glad I'm glad you brought this up for sure. I I have yes, sorry. Peter. I was on a, on the point of on the point of throwing out unwholesome thoughts. I, I guess I have a, a question and a thought about kind of the process of the process of it. Is it just a, like oh I've I've seen this I see this unwholesome thought arise. I'm going to like push it out of my mind, or is it is the process more like I see this unwholesome thought arise. I don't feed it. I just kind of let it dissipate, and then I shift to more wholesome things. I guess. Uh, I guess I'm trying to think. The of... shifting of the un of the into the wholesome things is what we're calling gladdening the mind. Right. So let I us guess... put it this way: that, that uh, think of a mind moment is like having a conveyor belt, hmm. and that. Uh, the only thing that you are when you're standing in front of that conveyor belt is the item that's right there in front of you. Mm. But that's going to move. And then a new item is going to be in front of you. And then that's going to move too. And now you begin to recognize, wait a minute, I have a choice over what I'm going to have right in front of me right now. That you, in fact, can have the thoughts you want to have if you wake up and decide that you can have the thoughts you want to have. If you don't wake up, if you don't have sati, then the then uh, that which used to decide what thought you were going to have will continue on. And so, if you're in the habit of having wholesome thoughts, you'll just go from one uh, thought, wholesome thought, to the next, absent-mindedly, and you're not paying much attention to what's going on. But that's a whole lot better way to live than going from one unwholesome thought to the next unwholesome thought, absent-mindedly, not paying much attention to what's happening. Mm. But the absolute best way to do it is to, uh, is to move from one wholesome thought to the next, knowingly, knowledge knowledgeably, watching what's going on, uh, be here now, mm. not absent-minded. Mm. That in fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about that uh, having wholesome thoughts absent mindedly. That we do. We do. We have those a lot. If we didn't, we'd probably burn up and die. No mm. one has totally unwholesome thoughts all the time. Just too often. Mm. And so, and the time, you see, Here's something very interesting. This hour that you, that the three of us have been talking, there has been very, very little unwholesome thinking because we're talking about wholesome things, mm. right? But when you go sit down on the floor and do your meditation, what kind of things are you going to think about? You have a choice then too. Mm. You can sit and think about the Dhamma. Thinking about the Dhamma while sitting on the floor is a whole lot more wholesome than thinking about the fight we had with Aunt Susie or packing our bags to move to Kenya or anything like that. Mm. 
In fact, thinking about packing bags to go to Kenya, that sounds a lot of duke there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well said. Okay. I see. All right. Well, uh, I really appreciate both of you calling together. Uh, this has been delightful. I've enjoyed, and I hope to see both of you again. You've got a new way of practice, something to do now. Uh, and we'll go into the more details of Anapanasati later, but I think that we've gotten an overall point so you can change the method of practice. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so generally, I recommend that, that new students call twice a week or so. Is that okay? Okay. All right. If you've got time, that's okay for us. Yeah. Pardon? If you have got the time, then that's okay with me. All right. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I'll see you in two or three days then. <laughs> that sounds right. All righty. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you very Bye -bye. much, Thank, thank you. See you soon.